Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this, the latest of Practico's cost chat among friends. Um, the friends are, as usual, uh, Andy Ellis, the managing director of Practico, myself, Jeremy Morgan, retired cost silk and uh, consultant to Practico. And we're very pleased to have with us again, uh, Andrew Hogan, a uh, well-known cost barrister from King's Chambers, whose costs blog, I'm sure many of you also follow. Um, just a, a little bit of housekeeping before we start talking. You don't have to make extensive notes of this because notes will be sent out to all of those on Practico's mailing list. And there will be links to uh, the YouTube uh, version of this and also to podcasts for those, or podcast sites for those who want to hear the audio version. So having got that out of the way, um, a quick uh, preview of what we're going to be talking about, a, a very quick look at a recent Court of Appeal decision on the uh, Road Traffic Act portal stage three, um, a look at a, a European uh, Parliament report, which is of some interest despite uh, Brexit, and um, a further look at the CJC's Costs Working Group consultation, um, time for which has be, been extended to the 14th of October. But uh, firstly, the case of Islington and Boras, and I'll pass you over to the very capable hands of Andrew Hogan. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I think the first topic on the agenda, this case of London Borough of Islington and Boros, and the link case of Davis and Yusuf, uh, is worth talking about really for three reasons. The first reason is that it has to be one of the most turgid Court of Appeal judgments I've seen in recent years, as it goes on about A1s, R1s, CJ1s, and so on. And it's very far removed from Bluebell time in Kent, or any of the other more colourful judgments that litter the law reports. So it's not going to win any prizes for style. The second point is that it could be viewed as being a decision of particular interest to personal injury and I suppose road traffic practitioners because it deals with the um, portal and in particular how cases which um, are about 700,000 in number each year are dealt with by the courts in 10 or 15 minutes of court time insofar as they reach the stage of a court hearing. Uh, and to that extent, it is interesting because it illustrates just how light touch the court is when it comes to this sort of bulk disposal of low value cases worth up to £25,000. In essence, what the case was about was uh, claims for credit hire charges arising out of hire cars that have been hired by a couple of claimants after accidents. And the defendant insurance company saying, well, there's actually quite a body of law on this. And if you're going to bring such a claim, you need to plead it in a particular way. You need to prove it in a particular way. And we need to have the opportunity to challenge it in a particular way. And um, the claimant saying, well, actually, you haven't raised any of these particular points in your short form pleadings or correspondence. And if you wanted to raise those points, well, this isn't a portal case at all. Here you're talking about having a trial, in which case it comes out of the portal process, uh, goes into part seven, and the cost consequences can be quite significant. Uh, and the Court of Appeal um, effectively says, well, the claimants are right about this. This is light touch. 
Um, this is 15 minutes of court time. If you want to go down uh, that route of investigation and challenge, then you take it out the portal. And so you get to the situation where without being overly simplistic, you have um, a claimant asserting their case is worth 10,000 pounds, a defendant at one stage in the process challenging that and saying it's worth say 5,000 pounds. There being no further forensic investigation or attempts to put in evidence or documents, the matter going off to a deputy district judge, he says, well, there's nothing really here to discount what the claimant's saying. So they get what they're asking for. Now, I think the third point where this is significant is to look at this as possibly representing a direction of travel. Because what you have here is bulk litigation or litigation of a particular level and value. You have an online process, which is highly rigid, highly mechanistic. Uh, and you have the court saying, we're gonna to stick to that. And we're not interested in wider investigations because we're concerned with rough justice uh, proportionate cost. Now contrast that with, say, an action in the commercial court, where you might have millions of pounds at stake, in which case there's going to be a very um, large factual inquiry undertaken, possibly millions of costs incurred, and at the end of it, a 600 paragraph judgment from a high court judge. And so if you have those two as the bookmarks at the extreme of how we litigate cases in this country, the real interesting question as we move more towards a sort of online digitized approach to wider and wider categories of cases is how is the court going to pitch the sieve? Is it going to be a very coarse uh, grain sieve whereby you get something more akin to a portal process applied to cases worth 100,000 or 200,000 quid? Or is it going to be a much finer mesh with um, disclosure, witness statements, experts, and a multi-day trial, um, more akin to the top end of the situation. And I don't think there's an answer to that now, but what this case does show up, as I say, is a direction of travel, which suggests that you know, the digitization approach is probably gonna lead the way over and above the substantive law. Um, anything to add to that, Andy? No, that was a, a, <clears throat> it was a really good summation of, of A, the case, which I promise I tried to read. Um, <laughs> I got as far as I could before I skipped to the bottom and then was very relieved to say, oh, that's good, Andrew's going to be summing this up, this one up for us. Um, um, but, but yes, it, it, does, it, it, I mean, it I think it just goes to show how, um, how tricky it will be to roll out um, some form of digital justice for cases that are not so um, uh, similar fact or almost identical fact as these form of road traffic accident cases. Um, they, and obviously the, the sort of people that deal with these, I suspect probably deal with nothing else um, because there are so many of them. Um, uh, uh, but uh, it, yes, it does rather, I, I mean, I, I can't, I'm like Andrew, I don't know what the answer is. But I think this frames the question really well um, in, in terms of uh, how can we get um, something that's more efficient at cheaper cost, um, and where can you where can you land between those two bookmarks that's going to serve the interest of justice and keep things affordable. 
Um, in a way, it's a continuation of, of the long-running um, issue, which is in probably in any judicial system, and certainly the British one, which is do you go for um, justice on the day? And the, we've had bluebell times in bluebell time in Kent already. Um, do you go for the old Denning approach, where you never quite know what the outcome is, or do you go for certainty? And this just is is the latest, more modern version of, yeah. of that um, that contrast. Well, I think the thing that makes it all feel queasy is is you know. Um, certainty versus justice yeah yeah um, i'm not quite sure that is why people go into these uh, things i mean i'm sure it's a uh, you know for self-employed taxi driver he just wants his money back but uh, um uh, but everybody else i don't know the mixture yeah, but the, then otherwise it costs a lot of money that's it, it is exactly. a real problem moving on then to the second um topic we were going to have which is as i mentioned the something from the european parliament and um, this is the vos report from the uh, European Parliament. But don't think that the Master of the Rolls has been moonlighting. It's another Voss with two S's, but I'll let Andrew explain more about that. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the big developments, I suppose, of the last 20 or 30 years has been the creation of a professional litigation funding industry. And it's an industry which is worth billions. Um, and it plays a very significant role in terms of facilitating access to justice. Yet one of the oddities of um, the litigation funding industry, at least in England and Wales, has been that it's by and large unregulated. So you have this very stark divide in that the, uh, the barristers are regulated, the solicitors are regulated, the cost lawyers are regulated, the ATE insurers are regulated, and have to have capital adequacy requirements and father accounts and you know comply with the system of authorization that they have. Yet at the same time, the litigation funders who will be making non-recourse loans to litigants, possibly again into the millions of pounds, are wholly unregulated. And that might seem to be a fairly odd state of affairs. How has this sort of developed? And it might be thought, well, it's developed because um, of a light touch approach taken by successive governments. But I suspect the true answer is closer to the fact that this is historical accident. No one's ever got round to proposing a system of regulation or taking cognizance of what is actually flowing to and from um, the, the, the accounts of litigation funders. There have been other attempts around the world to regulate um, litigation funding, most recently and most controversially perhaps in Australia. But what we have now had uh, really this year with a report in July and then an endorsement of that report in September by the European Parliament is a proposal for a European Union-wide system of regulation of litigation funding. Now, of course, um, I do believe that we're no longer part of the European Union we're no longer vassals to the European superstate, and we've sloughed off the chains of feudal oppression that Europe used to impose on us. But of course, to suggest that what happens across the channel doesn't impact us in any shape or form would be wrong and horribly naive. And a real question is, will we go down the European Union route of regulation to a less or greater extent, or will we uh, actually say, well, no, this is an opportunity for the England and Wales to forge its own path, to have either light regulation or no regulation, and in which case does that mean that England and Wales becomes more attractive 
as a forum, both for litigation funders and for the sort of cases that they fund. And that I think is possibly the, the, the real issue here. If we look at what has been proposed, Vos with a double S is a member of the European Parliament, as Jeremy says, not the master of the roles in a slightly disguised role with a funny accent. And he, he's put forward uh, as part of his report, his investigation into litigation funding, a draft European Union directive. And he's invited, and the Parliament has endorsed, the approach that the European Commission will take up this draft directive and make it law. And then it will be up to the member states to implement the European Union directive. And if they don't, well, then it will be applied in some shape or form anyway through the principle of direct effect. The actual content of the directive, I would venture to say, is every unregulated litigation funder's worst nightmare. Because what it proposes is, first of all, a system of authorization akin to what a bank or insurance in, uh, company has to undergo. It will also include requirements of capital adequacy um, in the sense that they have to prove they have enough money to fund the litigation, but also, of course, potentially to indemnify the costs of the litigation if lost. It proposes a cap on litigation funders' fees, which for the general case will be 40%, ensuring that the clients, claimants, keep 60%, possibly some scope for derogation from that, but the indication is very limited derogation. Um, it also imposes uh, requirements of transparency and disclosure. So there has to be full disclosure to the other side to litigation of the fact that there is for funder, the details of the funder, and that they are providing the funding, and possibly also disclosure to the court of the actual funding agreement so that the court can have a look at it and see where that takes us. Uh, and also it uh, provides, as the, the other big ticket reform, a complaint system with coercive power. So that if you have fallout with your litigation funder, and this could be at the one extreme failure to provide indemnity, on the other extreme it could be failure to answer the correspondence, you can make a complaint to a third party body, which will then have coercive powers to direct the funder to take remedial action. And I suppose at the end of the day, the ultimate sanction will be loss of authorization and inability to trade in the European Union. So all of those are really major reforms, which if they come to fruition, will level the, 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 the playing field upon which litigation funders um, operate in Europe and not in a good way as they would see it. Um, whereas at the same time, raising, as I say, starkly this question, does England and Wales, does the United Kingdom go down the same path? I think also what's worth bearing in mind is that already there is pushback on this side of the channel with various commentators saying, we can't have this here, this won't work. We won't take uh, on cases which we would otherwise do. Um, and in those circumstances, um, that has to raise an issue about concern to access to justice, even if the sceptical part of me is thinking, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? You're not going to embrace it in any shape or form. The other point, which, of course, um, isn't on the European agenda, but would certainly be on the agenda here if people tried to push forward a regulatory proposal, is whether you have regulation and authorisation 
of all cases brought by all categories of claimant, or whether you say, well, in B2B disputes, these are big boys, they can take care of themselves, they don't need this. Um, but there may be a role for it where you're dealing with consumer disputes. I, I say that because certainly what caught my eye in the last year or so was the very well-known post office litigation. And it seemed to be the case that, you know, virtually every week, a tranche of convictions were being quashed by the criminal division of the Court of Appeal. There was, of course, um, a long running and extensive civil action seeking compensation. But in the Financial Times in 2021, they reported that although the actual settlement was £58 million, the actual money in hand for the claimants was only £12 million. 46 million constituted deductions. Now, the article is fairly um, top level and that it doesn't explain where the 46 million went, but you're looking at that and thinking, crikey, for whose action was this really being bought? For whose, whose benefit, if, if that is indeed the level of deduction? Uh, and is there a role here for a 40% cap uh, in consumer disputes or something like that? And so I think this is going to be really interesting. We are, of course, in the position that we have a, a government which is engaged in a bonfire of regulatory measures. It may not be a bonfire that lasts for very long, given <laughs> what seems to be building up politically at the moment, um, with the, the pound crashing, uh, pension funds on the verge of collapse, uh, and all the other horrible things one's reading about in the news here in September 2022. Um, but irrespective of whether this government goes the distance, irrespective of whether a conservative regime is re-elected in a year or two's time, this isn't going to go away as an issue. Um, and it may uh, and it may very well shape or reshape um, the form of litigation funding in this jurisdiction for a generation. Well, one of the other interesting um, details of the uh, European directive or draft directive um, was that the court would actually examine these agreements when they came to be enforced and had the power actually to rewrite provisions which it thought were, were unfair or unreasonable. Um, so that, that would certainly put the fear of God um, among the, the litigation funders here. Um, in preparing for this, I look back at my, uh, my copy of Jackson's final report because I remember we had discussed this in Jackson, and the thinking of the, the reason why um, there was been no uh, regulation in the UK, at least at that time, was litigation funding was fairly new, was not very widespread, um, was largely confined to corporate um, clients who could look after themselves, and it was thought that it was we too much to regulate at that time. Be a lot of regulation for relatively little benefit. Um, but there was a clear marker put down that this thing will have to be reviewed as, as time goes by. And I looked at the uh, Associated Lit Litigation Funders website and saw an awful lot of new names that hadn't been around back in 2009 when um, Jackson's report was written. Um, so it, it's a very interesting um, area. But what, what's also interesting, I, I found, was that... Um, the, the European approach is, perhaps typically of Europe, very heavy on regulation and also founded on a great deal of um, scepticism about third party um, funders and, and what they're really up to. Um, in Australia, they've had, as, as Andrew mentioned, um, reviews from time to time of the situation there because, of course, 
litigation funding was really um, first got off the ground really well in, in, in Australia. And um, in a recent report on um, group litigation and third party funding in the federal court, um, they rejected the idea of regulation by a regulator and suggested that the court should, um, would be able to look after the situation with a few changes to the powers of the court. Again, the power to um, discipline regulators for not complying with effectively what is the equivalent of the um, England and Wales overriding objective. Um, and uh, things like mandatory security for costs and things like that were seen as a way of protecting against insolvency. So there are a variety of ways of approaching these things, but I, I must say I agree with that. <laughs> I think the prospect of a, it, it, this wouldn't be brought in in England by this government, if only because it is being brought in in Europe. <laughs> There's no better reason than that. Exactly. Yeah, I think we should we should point out that this is we're currently speaking at nine twenty five on on Thursday morning. <laughs> by the time, even if it's tomorrow, by the time anybody watches this, we might be in a different world. <laughs> and I was probably going to say, uh, well, I was going to say that that. Um, um, in, in preparing for this and, and, and reading some of uh, Andrew's work on it, um, I went back to Horizon and um, we, we were actually involved in that in a very early stage um, uh, on, the, on, the, on the budgetary side uh, before the budget itself was squeezed too much that they couldn't, uh, uh, that, that they couldn't justify keep it, keeping us on, um, which, was, uh, which was very clear and, and obvious. Um, and uh, I, it does make me... <clears throat> A little bit less sceptical and more concerned about the access to justice aspect because you know I'm aware without really being across all the details despite the fact we now see this as you know one of the great you know sort of injustices uh, of, of, of recent years a lot of people turn this down a lot of funders turned horizon down before before Ethereum took it on and with it I think a lot of law firms had cold feet before Freed Cartwright took it on, and you know, without um, <clears throat> without breaching any confidences, you know, I am I am very aware that um, the budget that Freed Cartwright were left with um, caused a lot of uh, internal angst because they were very concerned to be able to 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 um, uh, keep up their professional responsibilities to their clients even though they probably knew that this was going to be money they weren't going to get back. Um, and so it's a question of, well, <laughs> uh, despite the fact that it looks like superficially, you know, a sort of a greedy funder um, a, a case, if you just look at the, at, at the FT case, um, the fact is that if it hadn't gone ahead, if they hadn't, you know, if they, if they hadn't funded it in whatever way they did, um, it might not be. It might not have come to light quite in the same way that it has done, um, which would be even worse. Um, yeah. Well, one other um, wider implication of this, I suppose, is all right. This is a European um, directive, which probably will become the European law because it's certainly um, part of the, the general approach uh, on my side of the uh, of the channel. I live in Italy. Um, what is the impact on the, the, the legal market, if you like? If third party funding is available in the UK, but not in uh, Europe on terms which many funders are prepared to accept, does that have an impact on 
on litigation, um, the, the, the draft European directive only applies to proceedings in the courts of a member state, but also um, before an arbitral body situated in a member state. So could this lead to a bit of uh, a move of the seats of arbitrations? I, I, I raise that as a, as a, as a question. Uh, I think it's very interesting because a case I did um, some years ago um, called ESSA, which is in the commercial court, and that was um, seeking to challenge a decision of an, an arbitrator. And what the arbitrator had done was very interesting because he held that under the United Kingdom Arbitration Act of 1996, when he awarded costs, unlike um, the awards of costs in the court, he could allow the cost of litigation funding as a recoverable head of cost. Um, and um, that was a very surprising um, view. It was upheld by the High Court judge, uh, Mr. Justice Waxman, I think it was. And of course, he refused me permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal. And due to a quirk in the Arbitration Act, that was it. You, you couldn't actually renew. Um, your application for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal. So that was where the case rested. I've seen one subsequent commercial court decision which endorses um, his decision. But what I haven't seen is the fact that um, if you're looking at regulatory arbitrage, you know, the making one jurisdiction more um, uh, attractive than the other, that decision should have made England and Wales much more attractive for litigation funders. This directive, if it comes through, I think, Jeremy, is undoubtedly going to mean that there's going to be more pressure for regulatory arbitrage. There's going to be a push factor as opposed to a pull factor. Mm -hmm. um, and you may very well find that it goes beyond seats of arbitration. People need to start looking at their terms of agreements as to how they're going to resolve their disputes. And that will feed into the third issue that we, we, we're going to look at, fixed costs, I think, is part of it, um, and to what extent you can contract out of what may be a very restrictive cost regime. But, you know, the um, when you look at the Voss report, admittedly it's European Parliament, not European Commission, but it looks like a done deal. You know, the draft legislation is there, ready to go. Um, and, and as you say, it reflects the, um, the way European jurisdictions like to deal with things. Well, I, th I think that's a really interesting topic, um, which Andrew raised, and I'm very grateful that he did. Um, I think it's watch this space, um, but possibly not for, for a day or two. Um, so let's move on to the, the third topic we were talking about, which is fixed costs and budgeting in the light of the costs, the CJC cost working group consultation. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the consultation has been extended from the 30th of September to, I think, the 14th of October, an extra two weeks. I'm not quite clear why. There's been a suggestion that it's to accommodate submissions in the Belsner case, which is starting next week. But I can't quite see it myself because there certainly won't be a judgment from Belsner um, before the consultation closes. And so we're in the situation where a very pointed, very limited consultation has been put forward, which seems to have, um, I, I would say, three main targets. 
The, the first is fixed costs, the second is hourly rates, and the third is the role of budgeting. Those are the three that I think matter. Dealing with fixed costs, um, this all flows from the notion in the Jackson report, you should have a wider system of fixed costs. And it flows from the second Jackson report about five years ago now, saying that you should roll out fixed costs across the board to all categories of case, not just personal injury ones, uh, worth up to £100,000. Um, and now we have a situation where the government has adopted that approach with the idea that by April 2023, you will have fixed costs in place for all categories of civil litigation, maybe one or two exceptions, um, by um, uh, worth up to 100,000 quid. Now, the first point that struck me when I was looking at this many years ago was, well, who's asking for this? Who, who wants this? You know, I can see that in personal injury cases, um, there would be a drive by insurance in the, the insurance industry to fix costs. I'm also seeing clear neg that the Department of Health would want to fix costs, and indeed it's been running its own agenda in that respect. But who else wants it? What, 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 what interests want it? And I'm struggling to see what they are, other than the notion that the Ministry of Justice wants to make things smooth and even without a balkanisation, as I think it's been called, of different areas of cost for different types of work. What that creates, I think, is a real problem. And, and the problem is this. I don't think fixed costs per se are evil. If you were to say to a solicitor, here's your, your case, worth up to 100,000 quid, and your fixed fee for this will be £1 million, uh, they'd slap their hands off at that. It's not the concept, it's the fact that the fixed costs will probably be lower than what solicitors are already or, or charging at the moment for such a, a case, maybe a lot lower in fact, um, and also that once they've been set, they will simply rust into position, as has been the experience of all the fixed costs since uh, the Wolf Report, effectively. And the problem that that creates is that unless you strip out layers of work, in litigation, you're trying to get um, you know, a, a, a quart's worth of value using a pint pot's worth of money, and it just doesn't work. And so what then happens is that rather than the cost being paid by the other side's litigation, you have to dig deeper into the recoveries that are made by the client. Now that in turn will stoke the fires of solicitor own client disputes um, and solicitor act assessments. I've no doubt about that. Um, but of course, the real evil here, to my mind, of fixed costs is that nobody has either assessed or thinks it's worth assessing the effect on the legal profession more generally. And I'll tell you why that matters. The first point is I've never accepted that we're just private sector mercenaries looking to make money out of people's misery. No, the, le the legal profession in, an, in a mature and complex system of law has a constitutional role in ensuring that the rule of law um, endures. That's what we do. We hold people to account, we hold governments to account, we hold local authorities to account. And without us, people will not be able to access the rights that the law gives them. But if the effect of these fixed costs is to force lawyers out of business or to truncate the number of lawyers doing a particular area of work, or to force them to withdraw from particular areas of work. That's not a good thing. The second point which flows from that 
um, really is, um, to, to my mind, um, this, this problem that we see where levels of remuneration go down and you start to get deserts of legal support. Let, let me give you an example. I've been a lawyer for, I think, three or four economic cycles now. And one thing that rolls around every economic cycle are the housing disrepair claims. Um, there's a crash, public expenditures cut back, uh, public authorities, housing associations don't maintain their housing stock. People start to live in appalling conditions. They litigate to get, uh, to get their landlords to make good the properties and to compensate them for having to live in squalor. Um, once legal aid went, the number of solicitors doing that sort of work dramatically declined. Solicitors at the moment can do it because they're getting standard basis cost. But these are not easy cases to run. The clients are not sophisticated. Often the clients are illiterate or semi-literate. Uh, and if solicitors can't run these cases on a fixed cost basis and have to withdraw from that area of work, you're going to have widespread adverse social harm because people won't be able to access their legal rights. And that's just one tiny example of what the picture could be. So I'm really not a fan of fixed costs for, on, a, on a number of fronts. And, and I think that's got nothing to do with my own grubby financial interests. I'm sufficiently close to retirement now, it won't affect me. But I can see the problems that it will leave for this country in the years ahead. If we look at the second issue, guideline hourly rates. Um, one of the talking points that we've all debated over the last 10 years is again how the 2010 guideline rates endured. You know, everything else changed, governments fell, the Olympics came and went, the guideline hourly rates kept on going. Um, and then we had attempts to reform, I think in 2014, 2015 with Foskett and Dyson. Um, then we had um, a new broom saying, no, we're going to get this done and bringing in Mr. Justice Stewart. And he got it done, you know, in a way that Brexit was never quite done. Uh, and you had a set of guideline hourly rates and a set of um, guidance for summary assessment. But they made a rod for their own back because they said, we need to look at this in two more years. So that was 21. We're now looking at 2023. And suddenly, with all the other things that are going on, they, on their own, account they've got to look at it again so what are guideline hourly rates well they're increasingly divorced from reality because they don't reflect the old a and b calculations the expense of time they reflect um what various masters and district judges have been allowing around the country but those are guesswork as to what the expense to a solicitor is plus a reasonable level of profit and in the end they become more like a sort of floating tariff of fixed hourly rates, which can be departed from on an increasingly limited basis, depending upon um, the view of a particular judge. Now, do guideline hourly rates still perform a role? Of course they do, unless you're gonna fix costs for everything. But you can't fix costs for everything. Um, that would be uh, madness. So, so you need them, but they will, I think, become an increasingly arbitrary, um, set of figures, because I, I don't see the profession for one reason or another engaging, uh, because they haven't engaged for at least 12 years, in, 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 in informing uh, on an empirical evidence-based data what it's costing to run litigation. So that is a problem, but it's not a problem which has an easy solution. 
And the third issue is budgeting. I mean, we've all been there. Cost budgeting hearings, um, judges turning their nose up at having to get into the grubby factor of budgeting a case. But if you start at the beginning, why do we have budgeting? Well, the idea is that you should be able in our system to tell a client, this is what it's going to cost you if you win the case. This is what it's going to cost you if you lose the case. Um, and so budgeting has a role in effect as the, the hierarchical layer above fixed costs. Fixed cost tells you what you're going to get if you win, what you're going to get if you lose. Budgeting is the bespoke and more nuanced version of, of fixing the cost of litigation. Does budgeting work? Well, I've never seen any study which tells me, um, you know, we, 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 we've brought in this layer of additional costs, which costs X. The benefit to the clients are Y. Therefore, budgeting, um, taking into account the drain on the public person and judicial resources at Z, is worth doing or not worth doing. That, that work just has never been done. Instead, you get a series of cliches and aphorisms, budgeting works, this sort of thing. My own view is that budgeting is a very useful tool indeed, because I think it would be wrong to go back to the old days where people don't have a clue um, what the other side are spending, or dare I say, even what their own lawyers are spending. Um, but the question as to whether budgeting is correctly gauged at the moment is, I think, far from clear. If you're in a situation where you're fixing costs up to 100,000 quid, then that's taking out a huge tranche of cases anyway. But beyond that, you've got the sort of low value, I say low value, I mean, I'm talking 101,000 quid and upwards, personal injury case or clinical negligence case, where you have the Quox rules in place, which means that practically the defendant is never, ever going to get back their costs. Somebody will say to me, no, that's not right, because, of course, there's the Part 36 provision. But, you know, I, I would say in one case in 100, two cases in 100, a defendant makes an effective Part 36 offer, so it actually matters. But why are we spending all this money, all this time, and adding in delay into the process, doing budgeting when it just won't matter for one side, and when in relation to personal injury and clinical neck cases, People have a fair idea what an expert will cost. They have a fair idea what the market rate for counsel will be. And they know how long it should take a solicitor um, to run a case of a given magnitude with given dimensions, roughly. So why do you need budgeting at that level? Especially if you know it's going to take a nine month delay onto the case, which isn't unrealistic given the current state of this, during which more costs are going to be incurred. And I've heard horror stories where people might have been able to agree the directions, but simply can't agree the budgets. So the case has to come to a stop until that CCMC has been dealt with. Where could budgeting be retained? Well, I think there's a number of instances where it would have a real value. I'll give you two. Take, for example, um, privacy and defamation cases. Often the damages in those cases are relatively low. I mean, you can claim for economic loss in that you know, you've lost work or your business reputation has been trolled or whatever. But most of the cases that I see in the context of cost assessment, the damages are low, but the costs are high. And you may say, well, actually, this is a, a, a sort of case where budgeting does have a 
the role does have a value. There's also bear in mind as well that in many of those cases you have the um, the free speech and freedom of expression considerations, which may give added force to being able to budget uh, for a reasonable and proportionate level of cost at the outset. The other example is where you're not dealing with uh, professional litigants or even professional litigants and the consumer are on one side, but dealing with two consumers. The boundary dispute. Um, I, in the first few years of practice, certainly did boundary disputes, horrible area of law. And it was always the same. It wasn't about the six inches of land that had been invaded and usurped and taken over. Usually there was a long history of decades of antipathy between the neighbours, which led to the dispute actually um, taking shape. And maybe they're arguing about what someone's Leyland I were doing as well. But when that went to litigation, costs of 100,000 aside for a five day trial to determine where the boundary went and who'd committed trespass were not unknown or even uncommon. And what would then happen is that the losing side facing a 200,000 pound bill for their costs and their opponent's costs would have to sell their house. And that would solve the neighbor dispute because they'd have to move. But was that a good thing? Is that a good thing? The answer is no. And certainly for that sort of um, case, budgeting, which focuses the party's minds, how are you going to pay for this, is a very good thing, it seems to me. So um, in summary, that's where what I think the three big issues are, and that's my take on what they are for this, this consultation, which is still open. Well, thanks, Andrew. That's very interesting. Um, what you just said about the, the neighbour dispute reminds me of um, back again at the Jackson um, inquiry when that was going on. Um, I was always very opposed to the blanket recovery of 100% success fees and ATE premiums in all cases, because I thought of precisely that, the neighbour dispute. You know, you have a silly dispute with your neighbour or a perfectly sensible dispute about something else, but you are a private citizen fighting uh, a private citizen or even a company. Uh, and you lose and you end up paying you know more than double the cost which you'd otherwise have paid and that always seemed to me a, a great injustice um, whether sweeping away recoverable success fees in pi cases against insurance companies um, was necessarily the consequence of all that i'm, I'm less sure about but uh, certainly in those cases it struck me as most uh, appalling potential injustice the, the other thing that um, i wanted to mention from what you said uh, earlier on um, about uh, the importance of the rule of law. Um, I entirely agree, and the example you give of um, housing disrepair cases is, is, a very, is a very good example. We've got the same with, with crime as well at the moment, don't we, with um, the cutbacks in, in legal aid. Um, I was thought, I, I retired to Italy um, in 2013, 14, round about then. I always thought talk of the rule of law and its importance was a bit sort of, British superiority and a bit highfalutin, and there was the Bingham Centre for the Rule, all that kind of stuff. Actually moving to a country where the justice system does not work well, it doesn't work anything like as well uh, as in Britain. You take, you have very, very long delays, quite arbitrary decisions, and um, a system where most people avoid law if they possibly can, because it is, it is not a good solution. And it really brought home to me, actually it is um, essential for civilised living, certainly in a democracy, that you should be able to 
challenge decisions you don't like, to um, take up disputes where you feel you've been um, wronged, and protect the quality of your home in the example that you've just given. Um, so it, it is something which we should definitely keep at the forefront of our minds. And it's right to see these wider um, perspectives on, a, on what seem to be narrow technical issues. Absolutely. Andy, anything to add? Well, no, I, I, only a footnote, really. I, I, I found that review really helpful, and 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 um, I, I agree with, with with very much of it. Um, but just a footnote, talking about cycles, you know, cycles of legal and regulatory fashion. Um, paradoxically, um, somebody contacted me from Australia a couple of weeks ago to tell me that. Um, they're just thinking about going or in, in the state of Victoria, they, they're, they're just working actively and there's reports on it um, uh, about moving away from scale costs, which is their sort of version of fixed costs, and moving towards guideline hourly rates and budgeting. Um, now, I think maybe some of the work that, that's um, happening over here that they're now aware of uh, might have scared the horses a wee bit, so there could be delays on that. Um, but, it, but, but just maybe what we've got now with, with budgeting certainly is... Um, is uh, you know the worst system apart from all the others, uh, which is uh, which is I think where my take is on it. Uh, but the compartmentalizing it uh, uh, for types of work, I think, is a really is a, is a really interesting take, um, and and I'd like to think that that has legs. Yep. Well, look, I think that's um, pretty much done it. I'd really like to thank Andrew very much for a very very interesting contribution on all um, of the topics we've discussed this morning. Um, I'd like to, to leave on this note, um, Practico's um, sessions like this have been entirely online throughout the pandemic. Um, and many of you will know, replaced earlier physical um, meetings we used to have um, in London before the pandemic, but paid to that. Um, this process is about to resume and the first such session is going to be on October the 20th. Um, and we're delighted to be able to um, welcome Lord Justice Burst, the chair of the uh, CJC committee we've been looking at just now, and uh, deputy head of civil justice um, with Alex Hutton Casey, um, as I must um, use that term. Um, and so we'll be welcoming back the, the Bacon Sani with any luck. Um, it is by invitation only, but if any of you who are listening to this are interested in being invited or not on the invitation list, do get in touch with Practico. Yes, yeah, so the, the best person to do that with or uh, will probably be my colleague Deborah Burke, whose email address and details are on the practico.co.uk website, easily obtainable. So on that note, um, we look forward to seeing some of you in London um, in person. And once again, thank uh, Andrew for his really interesting discussion this morning. Thanks thank very much. Me. Thank you, Andy.